Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity to be here this morning. God, we thank you for the beautiful weather and the sunshine, Lord. Thank you for the chance to come and worship you this morning. God, for a time for us to acknowledge, Lord, uh, how much we need you every single day. God, and just to, to show our gratitude for what you have done for us, Lord, that you have rescued us. God, that you have sent Jesus for us, Lord. We thank you so much for that, God. I pray that, Lord, as we, as we hear your word today, God, that we will look within our hearts, God, and see where there are things that we are placing ahead of you, Lord, and that you will help us put those in their proper place. God, you are the giver of life, and we are grateful for that. In your son's name we pray, amen. My name is Lee, I'm the family pastor here, and we are so grateful that you chose to join us today. We've been going through the book of John, and so Pastor Matt spoke on the first part of John chapter 7 last week, but since it's been, you know, a week since then, some of us have forgotten what was talked about. That's when we come to church every Sunday, right, because we forget a little bit about the week before. We need to be reminded each week. So where they're at right now is there is this festival of tabernacles or feast of booths. There's a couple of names they call it. The beautiful thing about this, in order to set up this context, what it is is it's a time where the Jewish people, they are celebrating when God took them out of slavery in Egypt. He took them out of slavery. They lived in the desert and they built like these little tents they had like three walls, like a back and two side walls, and they had like branches on the top. And so that's what they slept in. And so God provided water. He provided food in the remember for that time. So every year, the people of Israel are having this festival to remember that. And what they do, right, so they're, at this point, they're back home in Israel. And so on top of their houses, they set up these tents. It's basically like camping for like a solid week. So even though they have houses, they set the tent up on top of the house. Everybody, kids and parents, all sleep in the tent for the week. So this is, this is the festival of tabernacles. And this is where Pastor Matt spoke about last week. This is a big thing where everybody would have come. And so at this point, Jesus is starting to do signs and miracles and talk about who he is. And his brothers said, hey, why don't you go up to this festival? Everybody's going to be there. Let everybody know who you are. Let everybody know what you're doing so that, so that it can be well known. And if you remember last week, Jesus said, my time has not yet come. So now we get to the part of the chapter where his time has come for that. Because what happens in this festival, the priest, every day for the week, the priest would get water from the pool of Siloam, right, which is the water that was used for throughout the temple, and he would take it and he would pour it on the altar as a way to reach out to God, because during this time, what they're saying is, we're dependent upon God for rain, for water, for our crops to grow, and for life to be sustained. So that's why they're doing this ritual every day. And so every day, the priest goes, he gets the water, he pours it over the altar. Everybody's still having their celebrations every day. Now, what Pastor Ian just read for us, those verses 37 through 39, in verse 37 it says, the last and greatest day of the festival. So, we should naturally ask, why is this the greatest day of the festival? Not just because it's the end, there's more to that. On the last day of the festival was the day that everybody would take the walk from the pool of Siloam where they got the water. Everybody, the priests, all the people would all take the walk from there to the altar to pour out water and to pour out wine as a way to say, God, please provide for us for this next year. 
Because this festival always happens during around September or October, right before the rainy season. So what they're doing is saying, hey, God, we're, we're acknowledging that you give us rain. We know that we need rain. We need water to survive. Please do that again for us this time. And so what Jesus does during this time is he waits till it's the greatest and last day. So this is a very sacred time, right? When the priests are going and all the people are coming with them, no one is talking, right? Like it's not, people aren't going crazy. It's not like a wild party at this point. It is a sacred occasion. And so Jesus stands up and says in a loud voice, verse 37, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. So he's taking this water ritual that they're doing because they're looking to God to provide rain. They're looking to the rain as the life that they need. And Jesus says, no, it's so much deeper than that. It's so much deeper than that. You need to come to me and drink. And then in verse 38, it says, rivers of living water will flow from within. So what Jesus is doing here, what Jesus is saying, anyone who is thirsty Come to me and drink. The cool thing about this festival is if you go to Israel today, they, this still goes on, right? They're still having this. This isn't something that like, oh, maybe it did or maybe it didn't happen. I guess we just got to trust the Bible. Like it's still happening to this day. If you go in the fall, I mean, I, you probably couldn't get there because of COVID and everything. But if you go, they're still having this festival. And because in, in the Jewish faith, right, if you're strictly Jewish faith, there is not a belief that the Messiah has yet come. So there's a need to continue to do these things until Jesus comes. That's the difference between Judaism and Christianity. So this is still going on. So I love to find those things that are just in history, and they're still going to be like, listen, the Bible is not just some made-out thing. There are connections we have throughout history to keep this going. And if you weren't here last week, let me remind you that um, there was an arrest warrant out for Jesus at this time. All the crowds, all the people were divided about Jesus and who he was and what he was talking about. And so there was an arrest warrant for him. So there are people in this crowd, right, that are all going to the altar. Some wanted him arrested. Some wanted him killed. Some really weren't sure. Like, I don't really know what's going on with Jesus. And some thought that he was the Messiah. But we need to look very closely at verse 37 and see the words that Jesus says because these words are great. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. What we need to see here is that Jesus' invitation is open-ended. He doesn't say, listen, let those of you who don't want me arrested, you guys can come to me and drink. Let those of you who think I'm the Messiah, you guys can come to me. But he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. He's offering this even to the people who want to kill him. How many of us are going to do that? How many of us extend invitations to people who want to kill us? I mean, hopefully for you guys, there's not a lot of people that do want to kill you. I hope that's not a regular occurrence. But this just shows the grace and the love that Jesus has for all people. That everyone is invited for this. Everyone has a chance to come to him. And if we look at this closely, what is the only requirement to come to Jesus? That they're thirsty. That's it. That's it. How many of you know what it's like to be thirsty? Anybody? We all know what that's like, right? Every single one of us. I mean, I guess, yeah. Yes, thank you, Harper. See, even my daughter, she knows what it's like to be thirsty. 
what Jesus is connecting here, he's, he's reminding us, listen, you all have a physical thirst. We all can experience that. But he's also telling everyone there's a spiritual thirst that needs to be fulfilled as well. Every one of us, every person that has lived throughout time, we would all say there is something inside us that we're longing to be fulfilled. Every, I think everybody, if you're being honest, there is something internally that you need to be fulfilled. And so what Jesus is saying is I'm the one who can take care of that. But in reality, what, what do we do? I want you guys to take a, take a second and think for yourselves throughout your life, what are things that you have looked to and said, if I could just have that, that would give me life. If I could just be in a relationship with somebody, that would give me life. Life would be great. If I just had more money, if I could just afford more things, if I could go on trips to Europe, if I could just afford to pay rent on time, right, anything like that, if I could just have more money, I would be less stressed, I would have more options, then life would be good. How many of us have said, you know what, I need to be well-known and have a high status. I need people around me to know who I am and know that I'm important. How many of us have gone to that thing? Okay, I'm at my job. I got to work harder. I got to do more things because it's important to me. If people know who I am and my opinion is valued, then, then that's really going to be, I'm really going to know what it's like to have life. As a family pastor, a lot of things I look through from, from that perspective. And so a lot of times I've seen parents say, if, if only my kids could do everything that I want them to do, and fulfill all the things I want for their lives, the things that I wasn't able to do, if that could happen, then I would have life. And the reality is, and this is especially true when we put people in that, in that area, right? If you're looking to your spouse or a significant other or to your kids to give you life, you are putting a weight and pressure on them that they cannot possibly bear. There is no human being alive that can be your soul source of satisfaction. Because even think about it from, from as a parent, right, I got a, my kids are in here, they're about to be 8 and 10, and so I want great things for my kids. I want them to work hard, I want them to be kind people, I want them to make a difference. But if I gear my whole life to what my kids do, then one, that's just completely unfair pressure to them. And guess what else is going to happen? They're not going to do everything perfect. And so if my whole life is centered around what they're doing, then that's going to lead to disappointment. That's going to lead to despair. That's going to lead to heartache. And also, there's just a reality. Right now, my kids listen to me because they're almost 8 and 10. When they're 20 and 18, uh, right? I don't know if they're going to listen to me. I mean, I guess if I'm still paying rent, then they'll listen to me. But that might be about it. But in... The reality with those things, right, like everything that I'm mentioning, there's nothing wrong inherently with those things. It's not bad to be in a relationship. It's not bad to, to have a good paying job and to make money. It's not bad to be married. It's not bad to be single. It's not bad to have kids. It's not bad to not want kids, right? None of those things are bad in and of themselves, but what we do is we make them the ultimate thing in our life, and we say, you know what, there's this internal longing, and I'm going to take a person or a thing, and that is going to be what fills me up, and it's always going to disappoint you. It will last for a time. 
time, I'm not going to lie to you, it, for a time it will be fine. But there will come a time when that forsakes you, right? A lot of people were very secure in their money, things were going great, and then a global pandemic hits and people lose jobs. That's gone. Our kids grow up. Our spouse passes away, right? As we get older, sometimes the status we had at our business or in our society, it's not as strong as it once was. And so if we're looking to all those things to give us this source of life, then they're going to continue to disappoint us. And I love what Jesus says. He says, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. So not, he's inviting everybody. All we've got to do is be thirsty. And what he's also saying is that all the satisfaction you're looking for is found in me. You see, what happens with all those things that I've been mentioning, again, those are not bad things. I believe that those are gifts from God, but they're not intended to be the supreme thing in our life. Right? I, I, I love my wife deeply. She's not intended to be the supreme thing in my life. One, that's not how God designed marriage. And two, that's not a realistic thing to do. Your spouse cannot fulfill that role. A parent cannot fulfill that role. That only comes through Jesus. And so when he says, verse 38, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. The beautiful thing about this is there's no limit. It's not like Jesus is like, here's three buckets, and when you're done, you're done. Right? Rivers will continually flow. The things that we put our trust in and our faith in that are not Jesus, they all have limits. They will all eventually run out. And then we're going to change it to what we want. I was talking to a friend this week. I, I just finished reading this book, and it was talking about um, you know, how to focus your time and energy on what matters most in your life. Now, if we think about that, what we realize, what matters most in your life changes every couple of years. Think back to high school. Think about what mattered most to you in high school. Did you care about that five years later? Right? Probably not. If you went to college or if you got a job after, right after high school, what was most important to you then, that changed. Right? So in those moments, we gear up everything towards, okay, this is what I want, this is what I want. But then a couple years later, what matters to you changes again. And the only thing that's constant through this is Jesus. So if Jesus is our satisfaction and if he's our starting point for everything, then that means as these gifts from God come into our life, we put them in their proper places. Everything starts with Jesus. And then the gifts here, we can enjoy and we can put them in their proper place and understand that they are for ways that we can glorify God and that God brings those things in our lives as a way to honor him and a way for us to have joy. But that's ne- those are never intended to be the number one thing in our lives. Because if we do that, we'll have to continue to look for a source of satisfaction for our soul, and it can only be found in Jesus. And so then we ask the question, what does it mean? Rivers of living water, what does that mean? In verse 39, it tells us plainly, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, what we need to understand, it's not that the Holy Spirit is nowhere to be found and just comes onto the scene here. The Holy Spirit has been around for eternity. Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, all there from the beginning, from the beginning, for all time. 
But if you read through the Old Testament, there are certain moments that God puts the Holy Spirit on people or on events for things to happen. And what Jesus is saying here is faith in me puts the Holy Spirit now in you. Right? There's not, there's not a need for this festival of tabernacle once a year because the Holy Spirit's going to be tabernacling with you. Later on in John, I believe it's John chapter 14, so if you stick with us, you'll hear about this. There's a moment when Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to go away. And the disciples are like, no, no, we don't, we don't want you to go away. And he tells them, and this is hard for us to fathom, but he tells them, it's better for you that I go away. Because then the Holy Spirit comes. Because when Jesus was on earth, his presence was limited to who he was physically around. When it says when Jesus was glorified, since Jesus had not yet been glorified, that's referring to Jesus' death, resurrection, and then ascension into heaven. So at that moment, everybody who has faith in Jesus is now filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's what this rivers of living water will flow from within. And the Holy Spirit, that's the thing that enables us to do the things we need to do to follow God. It's the thing that helps convict us of sin when we know something tells us, like, listen, we're not doing the right thing. That's the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, and that's what is given us. And the beautiful thing here, we, you know, we, we, we so much, I hear a lot when I'm talking to people, and they'll say these words, if only I could see Jesus and hear him talk to me or see his miracle, then I would believe everything will be fine, okay? So now, let's, let's look in, in verse 40. Right? These are, Jesus is around all these people. And let's see what the case is. Verse 40, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. These people were in Jesus' presence. Did all of them believe? No. Some of them wanted to kill him. Some wanted to arrest him. The reality is, if Jesus were among us today, same thing would be the case. Some would believe. Some would want him arrested. Some would want to kill him. There was division among people because of Jesus. This was written 2,000 years ago. Today, there is still division among people when it comes to Jesus. That's still the case because here's the reality. Yeah, we have new things, right? We have new technology. We can travel all over the world, things they couldn't do back then. But guess what? The human heart is still the human heart. The things that we get lost in and the things we look to, those things have changed. But the reality is our heart is still in need of something that we cannot give to ourselves. It's still in need of something that we cannot give to ourselves. So these people are trying to figure out what's going on with Jesus. And it's interesting, verse 42, does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? The people who are, on, who are at this festival have a knowledge of the Old Testament. Because at that time, the only scripture that had been written was the Old Testament. That's all they had to go on. But what we know is that Jesus was from the line of David. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. 
but the way they're seeing it, if you would have met Jesus when he was five years old, right? He's not in Bethlehem when he's five years old. So these people say, we know him. This can't be the Messiah. This can't be the one who's come to save us because we know this guy. This is Jesus. It's not really that big of a deal. But in verse 44, it says, some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Earlier in chapter 7, Pastor Matt spoke about last week when Jesus kept saying, my time had not yet come. Everything that he did, his timing was perfect. And for us, that's hard because we want everything done on our time. Now, we are very limited in the things that we know and the things that we can see, but God is not. So if God has this perfect timing, then everything happens the way that it's supposed to, and everything with Jesus happened exactly at the time and exactly the way that God intended for it to. There was nothing accidental about this. So through all these things, it continues to point us back to Jesus being our only source of life, our only source of rivers of living water that flow from within. And so we spoke earlier about how there's been an arrest warrant out for him. And so the temple guards were were like the police at the temple. So verse 45, it says, Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. Now, to understand, the temple guards would not have been ignorant of the Jewish faith, right? It's not like, hey, let's find some tough brutes and they're going to be like our police force, right? In order to be a temple guard, you had to have a very thorough knowledge of the Jewish faith, right? Because only certain people were allowed daily access to the temple. So you had to know what you were doing. It's not just that you could be a good police officer. You had to also know about the faith. Right? And so these men in the temple guard know all about the Old Testament. They know about everything that's happened. Right? They're not ignorant. But that Jesus' words were so powerful, they said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. So it's challenging so many of the things. They're expecting one thing, and then Jesus is coming along saying that things are a little bit different. And the way the Pharisees reply shows a lot about their hearts. And when we reply in this way, it shows a lot about our hearts. So after this has happened, they said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. Verse 47, you mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. The Pharisees are basically saying, are you guys so stupid that you're letting this man trick you? So it's not a, it's, it's, they didn't come to him, hey, tell me what you heard. What, when you say no one speaks this way, what does that mean? We, I want to hear about that. Jesus threatened the Pharisees' life, uh, not <laughs> their way of life. I should put that in, that's important. Threatened their way of life because at that time, everyone looked to the Pharisees as like, these are the guys who know everything. These are the, the, the top dogs when it comes to religion. So they had a lot of power during this time. And Jesus coming in, And saying that he is the only way would basically take all that power away from the Pharisees. One of the things that we look to, if we look all throughout Scripture in the Gospels, the people that Jesus ever got angry with were the religious leaders. We really need to pay attention to that. 
Because what happened for these, for these Pharisees, there's this sense of arrogance. We didn't fall for this. Are you dumb enough that you fell for this? Because here's what we need to understand. Arrogance and Christianity do not mix. I mean, by its very nature, you can't be arrogant, be an arrogant Christian. Because in order for you to become a Christian, you have to acknowledge that you have a deep need that you cannot rescue yourself and that you need to be rescued by someone. So if that's the case, how can we ever be arrogant and think, man, I'm smart enough, that's why I believe in Jesus. I'm smart enough, I'm, I'm from the right city, I'm, I did the right things. That's why. There is nowhere in Scripture that Jesus ever approaches people with an attitude of arrogance. And in case you're wondering, right, if you have that sense of arrogance about your faith and you're trying to speak to someone who is not a believer, why on earth would they be drawn to that? Who wants to say, you know what, I love your arrogance, I, I want what you have. <laughs> when have you ever said that? Man, I love when people are arrogant towards me and treat me like I'm an idiot. That's great. I want, I want what they have. Nobody says that because nobody wants that. And Jesus never ever lived in that way, what we forget so often is the amount of grace needed for us. The amount of grace that Jesus has given us is unreal. If we think about what, did, what have we contributed to the offering of salvation that Jesus brings us, the only thing that we have contributed is the sin that made Jesus' death necessary. That's it. So I don't understand how we could ever have a sense of arrogance from that, knowing that we have literally done nothing to grant this salvation, to, to get these rivers of living water. That's nothing. I could never do that. You cannot do it. That, that is not anything that is within our control. But we oftentimes, I, I've seen it, people in the church, and we get this attitude like, oh, well, they're acting like this or they're acting like that. And so we forget the amount of grace that has been shown to us, and we refuse to show that to other people because they don't believe the same way that we do. You won't find that in Scripture. The people who were living lives that we would consider terrible, right, like, you know, all, all kinds of crazy sin, those are the people who Jesus went to and said, listen, I'm not telling you to get everything perfect and then you come to me. What does he say? If you're thirsty, if your spirit, if your soul, if you realize that you need something, then I'm here. It's not get things right and then come to Jesus. It's just come to me as you are. And we often don't show that grace to people around us. And that's, I, I feel like the past couple of years we've done a really poor job in that, just as the church in general. Not, not just our church, but the, the big C church across the country. We have forgotten what it's like to show grace to people. We have forgotten our need for grace. And so we need to be focused on that and remember that, that nothing we have did we earn. All right, so we're going to continue to see another spot where the Pharisees continue with their arrogance. Now, so Nicodemus, in chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because he didn't want the other Pharisees to know he was asking Jesus questions about eternal life. And so we see that even Nicodemus, as a member of the Pharisees, even he's like, man, there's, there's got to be something more to Jesus because the way he's speaking, the things he's doing, there's got to be something else. So after they're wanting to arrest him, in verse 50, 
Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, meaning he was one of the Pharisees, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? That seems like a reasonable question, right? Like, hey, guys, let's remember, like, people get a, a, a shot in court. Let's remember to do that. But their response is, again, they, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Galilee was seen as extremely unimportant. In the mind of the Jewish people, nothing significant could possibly come from Galilee. And so Nicodemus, they knew he wasn't from Galilee. They knew that he was very, he came from a very place with a lot of money, a, a long family line. And so instead of trying to speak to him in a regular way or even answering his question, it goes to shaming him. It goes straight to shaming him. Are you from Galilee too? That's like sometimes I hear Benicia people say, oh, you're from Vallejo, I'm sorry. I don't believe that. I've just heard some people say that. But you guys can repent about that later if you're one of those people. <laughs> but right, so sometimes you see people that live in different locations get attitudes about people that live in other places, and that's what's happening here. But again, they can't answer the question. The question was just, don't we normally give people a chance to go through a court of law? And so they result to shame, right? So a lot of things have happened in the past, in the past just couple of years. You don't we need to reach out to people? Like, well, and so we don't say, hey, you know what? Maybe there's a group of people who are hurting, and they don't believe what I believe. But guess what? My responsibility as a follower of Christ is to do what he has done for me and to show grace and to reach out and to help people regardless of whether or not they believe everything I believe, regardless of whether they see things politically the way we see things politically. None of that matters. Please understand, none of that matters. That's not what we're called to do. We are called to love people and show grace because that is what has been given to us. If we have these rivers of life, that's where things should come from. So again, this idea of arrogance and Christianity, it just, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't mix, it doesn't make sense. And if we're in that moment where we're thinking that, then we need to pray and ask God to examine our hearts and show us the things that we're doing wrong. Because there's nowhere in the Bible that talks to us about that. So one of the things that I want us to think about what are you looking to to give you life? Jesus says, I'm what gives you life. I'm what gives your soul satisfaction. What are you looking to? If you're someone who has not placed your faith in Jesus, like what are you, what are you looking to? Because there's something we're all looking to. And so I remember my life before, before I put my faith in Jesus and just how, for me, again, speaking my experience, how exhausting that was. There were so many things in my life, like it was like relationships and like job and like money, like all those things. I remember thinking like, man, if I could just get this, life would be good. And then I got those things, and then it's like, oh, I, I expected more than this. I expected this to be more fulfilling. And it was for a while, but it would always fade. That's such an exhausting way to live. And so the invitation for you today is just to, to be able to rest in Jesus. If he is our full satisfaction then our circumstances in life don't dictate the joy that we have. I'm not saying there won't be sadness. I'm not saying there won't be heartache. Please hear me on that. But if we look to Jesus, and if that's our starting point is Jesus, then everything else gets put in its proper place.
Because the reality is we are either trying to quench our thirst on our own terms or on Jesus' terms. Because, see, we sometimes pit it like, well, do I choose Jesus or do I choose evil? Right? That's the reality is, am I choosing Jesus or am I choosing myself? You can't both be Lord of your life. There's only room for one. It's either you or Jesus. You get to make that decision. And for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, a lot of times the kilter of the world will kind of knock us off kilter. And so what we'll do is we'll kind of get out of the habit of starting with our relationship with Jesus and then seeing the things kind of go from there. Right? We get worried about our kids. We get worried about finances, all these other things we get worried about. And so we kind of like slowly but surely we're kind of letting those things come back in and kind of push Jesus out. And so what we do is we say, okay, I've got Jesus, but yeah, Jesus, I, I also need more money. Like I've got Jesus, but I also need my kids to behave better. I've got Jesus, but I also want a better job. But Jesus says, come to me. He doesn't say, come to me and get some money and drink. It's only Jesus. It's Jesus plus nothing. That's the only thing that fulfills us, the only thing that sustains us. That is only possible because of what he has done on the cross. Jesus' death and resurrection is the only thing that gives us hope. And we are grateful for that. We're going to come to a time of communion, a time where we remember what Jesus has done for us. We remember his death and resurrection, how that is the thing that gives us life. Jesus talks about that he can fulfill our thirst. Earlier in chapter 7, he said, I am the bread of life. So what Jesus is claiming is that he himself is everything we need for life. Not just the things that he can give us, but just Jesus himself. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. On the same night, he took the wine and he poured it out for his disciples. And he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are so grateful. God, we are grateful and that you saw us and that you loved us and that you cared for us. Lord, we have nothing of our own to offer you. Lord, and you have so much to offer us, God, and you did that freely. Lord, you sent Jesus to sacrifice his life so that we could have rivers of living water flowing from within, God, so that our souls, God, that longing that we all have could be satisfied by you. Lord, I pray that you'll forgive us for the times where we push you to the side and try and find these other things that the world has to offer, God, because they cannot fulfill us for long, and they were never intended to. God, I pray that you will help us to make you the center of our lives. God, I pray that every day we start off, Lord, every morning, God, that we'll, we will reset.
God, and, and remember that you are the source of living water for us. God, not that the other things in our lives don't matter, because they do. You've given us those things, God. You've given those as gifts, Lord, as opportunities to glorify you. God, but they were never intended to be the ultimate thing in our lives. Only you were. Lord, and until we find that, we will continue to be restless. We will continue to change the thing that matters most. Lord, but our faith in you is what matters most. God, let everything else flow from that. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for all that you've done. God, thank you for what you've given us, Lord. It's in your son's name I